We're in Romans chapter 8, <clears throat> continuing on. We have a couple more sermons in Romans 8. Mentioned two weeks ago that uh, it's Romans 8 has been called the cathedral, the great cathedral of Christian doctrine. Uh, some have put it another way, if, if they were stranded on a desert island and they could take with them one chapter of Scripture, it would be Romans 8. Now, we don't want to put chapters of the Bible against other chapters of the Bible, but certainly the richness and the layeredness and everything that it contains for the Christian is so profound. And yet we have this magnificent chapter open before us, full of the riches of God's mercy and God's plan and God's love for his people. So I'm going to read, it's only four verses this morning, Romans 8, 12 through 16. This is the word of God. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. <clears throat> heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. <clears throat> That's the passage we're going to look at this morning. The title of the message this morning is The Fight, The Family, and The Final Reward. I don't usually get such clever little alliteration titles, but I thought I had to share that with you. We have a fight, we have a family, and we have a final reward laid before us in this passage. So before we get into it, I want you to consider your family. Maybe your family experience was less than ideal. Maybe you were one of many children and felt like you didn't get the attention of your parents. Or maybe you were an only child and uh, you, you longed for more camaraderie. Maybe you had a dad. Maybe you had a mom. Maybe neither were very present. We all have a wide variety of family experiences. But the fact remains in that, that the family, by God's design, is the original institution. It is the very first gathering of people. It's biologically natural. It happens, in many cases, accidentally. Families are begun. The family is pre-political. Before any vote ever takes place, a baby comes into the world regardless of what the polls say. It is pre-economic. You can have a baby whether you're rich, whether you're poor, regardless of your views on the government, it is the basic gathering and the closest knit constitution of human beings on planet Earth. No amount of science can change that. No amount of manipulation of policies or technology will ever change that. It is the first place of strength for children. It's the first place of safety for children. It is absolutely necessary for the development of a young child all the way to reach 
their ability to go out and face the world. We serve God and stand against Satan out of the strength and instruction that we receive in the family. This is why making sure our children are raised Christian far outweighs the responsibility of other Christian duties. We are responsible first to train our children to serve God. And out of that, they serve God with us to the world. The family of God, likewise, is the basis of our war against Satan and his schemes. And so today we find an obligation to fight. We find the confidence to do so in the family of God. And we find a final reward for this fight in Jesus Christ. So two weeks ago we were in Romans, the first 12 verses. We're now 11 verses. And we saw that God gives life by the Spirit. That's why we sang, there is a Redeemer. Thank you for leaving your spirit until the work is done because we, without God's spirit, could not fulfill the works of God. We could not fight against Satan. It would be impossible to live up to God's standard without God living in us. He puts his spirit on us in verse um, verse 11. It says that he will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So God makes it possible to live righteously. We saw two weeks ago. In verse 12, he goes one step further and he says, you also have an obligation to live righteously. So it's possible to live righteously. That's the first part of the good news. And the second part of it is that you now have, because it's possible, you now have an obligation. You have an obligation to God. The gospel is a free gift, but it does not come without obligations placed upon us. We are spoken of as slaves of God and slaves of righteousness when we are in Christ. It is not a full bank account and a full tank of gas and see you on the other side. Go do your thing and come back when you're done. In Christ, we are obligated under God to do something. Paul says it is an obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. He says if you are living according to the flesh, then you still need to die. Now, he's not talking about a physical death. He doesn't mean you need to die today to know who God is. You don't need to go into some spiritual suicide pact. It's the kind of death that it talks about in Romans 6 where it says... If I have been baptized with Christ, I have died with Christ. It is a spiritual death to our old life. That's what the kind of death Paul's talking about. And so if we're still living as a slave to our flesh, we need to go through that spiritual death. We need to die with Jesus so that we can live. Now, what is this obligation? Obligation, this word in the Greek has the idea that you've received something and so now you are under obligation to the person who gave you that thing. Does God give the free gift of justification with conditions? 
No, the condition is faith. But that doesn't wash away our response. We are now morally obligated and tied to live for God. <clears throat> and so it's our form of debt. We are in a moral obligation, a binding relationship with God. And he says the obligation is not to live according to the flesh. We looked at the mindset on the flesh two weeks ago. What is the mindset of the flesh? We can just glance over and remember what he's talking about in verse 7 of the same chapter. He says, The mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so. So if you find that that describes you, you are living in the flesh, and you need to be baptized into Christ. Are you hostile towards God? Do you reject God's standards as too strict or too exclusive or too puritanical? <clears throat> Do you find yourself trying to be a righteous or good person and failing? Those are three signs that you are still living in the flesh. He says we are now under obligation not to do that by the fact that the Spirit has been given to us to free us from that slavery. Fleshly living ignores the commands of God. But we're told over and over, back to chapter 4 and 3, it says that our salvation establishes the law. Our salvation establishes the law. <clears throat> and so we are enlivened to the standards of God's law in a joyful way. We can sing and pray like David did, your law is my delight, O Lord. <clears throat> And he says, if then you are in the spirit, if you are putting to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. So that's the, <clears throat> that's the opposing view here. If you're living in the flesh, you must die. But if you're putting the, the flesh to death, you will live. Mm -hmm. Right? God always holds out two choices before us, death or life. The choice is always before us. Do you choose life? an eternity with God, or do you choose death? The, the choice is before you. And in verse 12, it's put in very stark, very sharp contrast. And so remember that when we're Christians, we have become obedient from the heart. Romans also says that. And so I just want to deal with this idea of killing the deeds of the flesh for a minute. Sometimes as preachers, we're not... Isn't the deeds of the flesh trying to be right in God's eyes through doing works, though? And so if you're in the Spirit, it's because you believe on Jesus Christ. Yes, so it's both trying to please God apart from Jesus. Okay. That's one way of living in the flesh. It's to try to please God apart from Christ. And then there's other works of the flesh which are just straight up sin. Like drunkenness. Yeah, so I, and, and, I, and sometimes preachers, myself included, we're not practical enough. So I just want to talk about for me, I just want to zip through the Ten Commandments because the Christian life is said to establish the law in our lives. We delight in the law. And sin, we are told, is lawlessness. So wherever we depart from God's law, that's where we're committing sin. So let's go through the Ten Commandments very quickly. Just helpful things. Where are deeds of the flesh still thriving in your life? Or maybe not thriving, but maybe just sneaking around and need to be squashed like a little bug. Ten Commandments. Number one is to love the Lord your God and Him alone. 
It's to love God. That's the first and great commandment. So where would we kill the deeds of the flesh? I would say it would be to repent of your coldness toward God. We all have that at times, I know. Are we cold toward God? Do we have disinterest in the things of God? Would we rather just binge on Netflix than enjoy the fellowship of God and his people? So how do you kill that? You kill the things that dampen or distract from your love of God. Read books, listen to music, and talk to people that remind you of God's glory and inspire you to love him. If you need practical, if you need more practical advice on that, you can talk to somebody in our church. There's, we have lots of ideas for that. Uh, commandment number two, make, th make therefore yourself, for yourself no idols. So don't go creating gods that you lie down and worship. Repent of building and investing in things that cause you to worship anything other than God. This is in particular to things made of our own hands. Whether it's your business, whether it's your, your, the image of yourself, whether it's your philosophy or your writings or your great musings, the things, your intellect, things that you would elevate above God, repent of those things and worship God alone. Number three, honor his name. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Do not attach blasphemy or false religion to the name of God. Keep his name holy. If anyone speaks the name of God in your presence, say, what would you like to know about him? <clears throat> or even with your children, we only speak the name of God if we're describing his characteristics or his, his story or his word. Do not attach false doctrine to his name. Number four, keep the Sabbath holy. Six days shall you work and seven, on the seventh you shall rest. Work hard wherever you're given work to do. Repent of laziness. Kill laziness in your life or complacency. That's a deed of the flesh. Likewise, the corollaries on the seventh come together for worship. Rest and worship according to God's law. He commands you to rest. If you're not resting from your work, you're violating God's commandment and you're living in the deeds of the flesh. The rest of God, the rest of the Sabbath admits to God it doesn't matter if I work every day of the year, I'll never accomplish what you could, God. So when we rest, it admits that God is the sufficient one. So our rest is an act of humility. It's not wrong to rest. And worship God according to his word. Find out what God requires in worship in the old and new covenant. And worship according to the book. Don't reinvent worship. He lays it out for us mercifully. Number five, honor your parents. Live with joy and respect and obey them. Obey your parents, kiddos. It's the fifth commandment and it comes with a promise. God promises you a long life and peace where you live in honoring your parents. It's the only commandment that comes with a specific promise attached to it. Uh, older folks, take care of your parents. Make sure you are responsible for taking care of your parents in their old age. Number six, do not murder. Repent of your anger. Repent of your hatred that is directed towards other people. Even if they're more sinful than you. Repent of your hatred against others. Even if it's political figures that have made your life 
difficult or a boss. Repent of hatred. Number seven, lust and adultery. Do not commit adultery. Kill your wandering eyes. Kill your lustful thoughts. Repent of them. Preserve the purity of your marriage or preserve the purity of your body. Do not attach your body to, to unrighteousness and lust. Number eight, do not steal. If it's not yours, it's not yours. That's pretty easy, right? That includes voting for theft. Canada has become a radically socialized nation where, where financial theft is just normal. Financial redistribution has become normal. In the eyes of God, that is sin. To confiscate money that does not belong to somebody is sin. So don't vote for theft and don't do it yourself. It's not more righteous if the government does it. We need to vote better. We need to vote more like Christians. Number nine, do not bear false witness. This is a big one right now. Christians, do not agree with the false premises of lies. Do not go along with public lies. Do not allow lying in your heart. Do not lie to your spouse. Do not bear false witness against a neighbor. Truthful witness, by the way, when it says bear not false witness, truthful witness depends on keeping God's commands, not setting them aside, regardless of what the government expects you to do. Setting God's commandments aside in exchange for man's traditions is a lie and it is sin. Let's not make excuses. Let's bear true witness in the world in which we live. Number 10, do not covet. Don't want what you don't have. Do you know how much consumer debt we have because we want things that God has just not given us? Because we covet. We want clothing. We want upgrades. We want things that are not ours. And so we go into debt to do so. That is a red flag for covetousness. So kill that. Be content with your wages. Be content with what you have. For this is good and in accordance with God's commandments. So that's a quick rundown of the Ten Commandments. The Bible says, if you are putting to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. Friends, there is great reward in this battle. And it says that it is a battle of life and death. If you are entangled in the deeds of the flesh, the Bible says you must die. But you can live by putting them to death. It is a battle of life and death. Our spiritual lives do depend on clearing out this sin. Did you know that your effort against sin is part of the way God preserves you for salvation? Did you hear that? Your battle against your sin is part of the way that God preserves you for salvation. It's like the parable of the soil where the person receives the word with joy, but then when the cares of this world come along, it chokes out the seed. That's a person who does not fight against the temptations of the world. And they lose their confession. They walk away from the promises of God. It is a matter of life and death. I'm just going to read quickly 2 Peter chapter 2. Uh, two or three verses that puts this into focus. Second Peter 2, starting in verse 20, says, For if after they have escaped the defilement of the world, 
by the knowledge of the Lord and the Savior Jesus Christ, if they are again entangled in them, that is, sins, corruption, the last state has become worse than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed down to them. It happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. Friends, if you have embraced Christ and repented of your sin, this is a battle you cannot afford to quit. You cannot afford to become complacent because the last state is worse than the first. I'm gonna to read to you a quote from John Owen, who's a, lived in the 1600s in England. He said, be always at it, which is the battle, while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or sin will kill you. That's the memorable part of this quote. Let no man think that with a few easy strokes he will kill it. He who once struck a serpent, if he follow not on his blow until it be slain, may he repent he ever began the quarrel. Have you ever hit a bumblebee, or not a bumblebee, but like a wasp, and you didn't kill it? You either got to hit it hard enough to kill it, or you run. Because when you anger a snake or a wasp, it will come back with vengeance. So don't take on the battle with sin unless you intend, by God's mercy, by the Holy Spirit, to beat it. So is he who undertakes to deal with sin and pursues it not until death. So it's a dire warning, and you would think that the subject kind of changes after this in the passage. Like, okay, well, there's the battle for sin, and then we'll just change the subject. No, our second passage por portion is that we become family under God. How is this related? Let's find out. He says, for those who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So he says, if you want to be led by the Spirit, it's characterized in this context by warring against sin. Nobody is led by the Spirit into further sin. Have you ever heard people say, oh, I just want to be led by the Spirit? Unless that primarily means hating sin and running from it, I don't really know what you mean. The Bible says that if, if you are being led by the Spirit, if you are uh, combating sin by the strength and joy that God provides. Remember, fighting against sin is not sad and sorrowful. It's fun because you win. We laugh while we fight because we have the victory. We are led by the Spirit, putting to death the deeds of the flesh. And this is evidence that you are a what? A son of God. Paul brings in the family relationship as the foundation for your fight. You're not just off in the middle of the battlefield waving your plastic sword around, hoping that you bop a few enemies on the head. You are enlisted as a son of God, as a daughter of God in the fight against sin. Why are we given a new family name? Why are we called sons and not subjects or uh, you know, purely soldiers or employees? Why aren't we called those things? Jesus said to the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. So we are all born into this world with a father. His name is Satan. We're born into the wrong family because of sin. We talked about this in Adam. And we aren't, we aren't called to fight 
as slaves. We aren't called to fight as orphans. It says that we have received a spirit not of slavery, which is fear, but a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. You aren't running around fighting as a slave, fighting for your freedom. We fight as free children of God. We fight as free warriors. We don't go in alone. We go in with the mercy and help and love, not only of an all-powerful God, but of a father. Have you ever had your child come find you in a crowd? Do you remember when you were young, you'd find your parent in a crowd when you were afraid? And you knew if you spotted your mom or your dad that you were safe. And that your mom and dad would not let go of you. That your mom and dad would be there for you. Who do you come and talk to when somebody calls you a mean name? Come and talk to your mom and dad. Because we fight out of the strength of our family bond to God. And he calls us sons. Why does he say that we cry out under this new spirit? We cry out, Abba, Father. Jesus cried out from the cross, Abba, Abba. Eli Lamak Sabi, which means Father, why have you forsaken me? He called out Father from the cross. Jesus was stoned for almost stoned for calling God his Father. Because when you call somebody your Father, you take on their honor, you take on their family name. And the Pharisees said, You don't get to call God Father. And Jesus said, not only do I get to call God Father, but all my brothers get to as as well. Friends, the Jews would have stoned you for calling God Father in the first century. And we are commanded here to take on this adopted spirit and to call out to God. Think of your children when they were young or if you have young children, what do they cry out in the middle of the night? They don't cry out, Democrats, Trudeau, you know, they don't even cry out Kool-Aid. They don't cry out the name of their favorite snack, or maybe they do, and and your child, you know, is unique like that. But they cry out the name of their mom and dad. They cry out for help because they know someone is going to answer. What's it like when we're a slave? We cry out and nobody answers. We call out and nobody comes. That's what it's like without Christ. I know a lot of people who, are, who don't know the Lord, but they pray. They cry out when they're in need. We have, a natural, we have a natural thing in our hearts that when we need help, we know that there's a God who can help us. How do you receive the help from God? You must be born again into his son. And so our new fight, the fight that we're obligated to comes with the honor and privilege of belonging to God. And so our adoption does come with privilege. It comes with strength, but it also comes with obligation. We are commanded to carry the king's name, not only in the world, but in our hearts. I think it's first Peter that says, sanctify God or Christ as holy in your hearts. Sanctify him as Lord. Make Christ the Lord of your life, which means you don't get to rule over what you choose and don't choose, what sins you get to keep and don't keep. 
The Spirit also says that it testifies with our spirits that we belong to Him. The Spirit Himself, verse 16, testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Friends, your confession, your faith in God does not just rest on the historic confessions of Christianity that Jesus died, He rose again, you know, your sins are paid for on the cross, God made the world in six days. Those are all true. But one of the reasons you are a Christian is because your spirit knows that you're a child of God. Because God's spirit has been talking to your spirit without you knowing it. And you know you belong to God. In fact, I was just, when I was preparing my sermon, this, this rarely happens to me, but I always pray as I prepare my messages. I ask God to teach me, to lead me through what I'm learning so that I'll live it out. And I was just typing this line. I don't know which one it was but about how God is just there and we know he's there. He, we know he's with us in the battles. And I just began to tear up. I just began to be overwhelmed with the joy that God is with me because he's my father. Not because I impressed him. Not because I haven't sinned against him. But he's with me. Are we in a battle right now? Are you in a battle right now of, of personal nature and of public nature? Absolutely. But God is your Father, and He loves you, and He's with you. We do not fight in order to be accepted as a son or daughter, but we fight from the position of having become one. And then finally, we look at the final reward. We look at the final reward. Because God understands us. If we're called to a heavy obligation... He knows that he's also got to include the reward that comes after. Because that's what we're like. We're shallow. We're fickle. We don't, we don't have the resolve in and of ourselves to do all this. So what does he say? If we are children, then we are heirs also. All this time I've been telling you we're going to verse 16, but it's actually verse 17. And if children which we just talked about how we are. We've been adopted from Satan's family to God's family. Satan doesn't respond when you call out at night. God does. So we've received adoption. And if we're children, guess what? That means you are in God's will. I mean his will and testament, like his final will. God has accepted you as one of the benefactors of his estate. God has written your name in the list of those who will inherit everything that belongs to him. And it also says fellow heirs with Christ. The Bible says that Christ is an heir. So friends, the battle is costly. I don't want to pretend it's not. I don't want to just say, hey, God's your father. It's going to be great. The battle against sin is costly. It takes confession. It takes humility. It will cost you your pride. It will cost you many of your pleasures, the things you once took comfort in. It will cost you comforts. It will likely even, and even more so today than before, it will likely cost you friends and opportunities in your fight against sin. You will lose worldly things in this fight. Christ said, blessed are those who lose 
family for my sake. They will be rewarded in my kingdom. Blessed are those who leave behind farms. Blessed are those who leave behind fortunes to follow Christ. Paul says, if you do that, you will receive with Jesus Christ an inheritance if we suffer with him. If we suffer, Christ suffered before he received his inheritance. Psalm 2, 8, what is Christ's promise? What is his inheritance? Psalm chapter 2, verse 8 says, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, in line with what Kevin was saying this morning. What belongs to Jesus? All the nations, all of them. And the ends of the earth as your possession. The grass you are sitting on right now belongs to Jesus Christ. This lock station belongs to Jesus Christ. Smith's Falls belongs to Jesus Christ. It's all his. And if we are in Christ, if we suffer with him, we will be co-heirs with him. Very interesting because we, are, we relate to the Trinity, the different parts of God in different ways. We are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So what does that mean? Christ is said to be the new, uh, the firstborn of all creation. Hebrews 2 says, He who sanctifies and those that are sanctified have one source. That is, Jesus and us have one source, God. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Christ calls you a brother. And he's not ashamed to do so if you suffer with him. If we suffer with Christ, we will be rewarded with Christ. Hebrews 12 uh, verse 2 says, Christ, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross and is seated at the right hand of God. What's the joy that was set before Christ? It was God bestowing on him the kingship over the whole earth in a concrete way. Christ inherited the heavens and earth after his ascension. He is Lord over every nation. He has bound and cast out Satan and his deceptions. But here's the thing. These are all glorious promises. But let's not lose sight of the fact that the life we live now, we live in bodies. You all brought your body with you here to church this morning. For good or for worse. Our bodies are not always our best friends. It's hard to get up. It's hard to get fit. It's hard to stay strong. It's hard to eat well. It's hard to control them. Or knees as you get older. It's knees. It's hard to have a body. It's hard to have our bodies anyway. They're not easy to tame. They're not easy to bring in subjection in the fight for God. But the fact is, we got them. And we're called to live for God in the bodies we have. You can't escape your body. You can't say, God, well, you know, if you just chopped off these certain parts of my body, then I would be able to live. No, because sin would just grow back in a new way. Your body's your body's your body. You got it? And you only have one until Jesus comes back. But your bodies are not beyond redemption. Remember back to two weeks ago, it says, he who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you and he will give life to your mortal bodies. That doesn't say a full-blown makeover. You're not going to get your 18-year-old body back. 
but he's going to bring life into your members. He's going to breathe life into your physical bodies so that your bodies can participate in the war. Your bodies can participate in the righteous uh, living for God. And that is such a joy. So yeah, we do live in the real world. We feel the sunburn on our skin. We feel anger well up in us out of control sometimes. We have temptation to lust, to sin, to steal, to gain our own advantage. All of those things we live with. It's okay to recognize that. But by the same breath, pursue God and say, God, I know you have given me the spirit. Show me how to wage war against the things that remain in my flesh. We do all of this under the comfort and protection of God as our father. Remember, he spoke creation into existence in six days. If you've been a Christian longer than six days, you are the handiwork of God way beyond how long it took him to create the whole earth. He has the power to form and conform your life to himself as long as you are breathing. So do not be discouraged by the sin that you see in your life today. By the Spirit, put that to death. Target it. Go against it and God will give you victory. Maybe you need to talk to another Christian about it. I guarantee you there's somebody who has gone through the same battle as you. And don't forget that when we cry out Abba, when, which, is, which is the Aramaic word for dad, when we cry out Father, our Father hears us. He hears you when you call out for help, if you are in him. And so the rest of this chapter really unpacks the idea that the cost of this small suffering is nothing compared to what we're going to get in Christ. That's the whole theme of this chapter. The period that we're going through now that's difficult. It's hard to deny yourself. It's hard to walk for God, but it's joyful. And whatever small sacrifices you make are nothing compared to what is coming in Christ. When Christ comes, he says, I bring, in Revelation, he says, I bring my reward with me. That reward is the title deed to the earth. He comes and he says, I am clearing out the dance floor and my people get to take over. My people are the kings and queens on this earth for eternity. That's the reward that Christ brings. Will you receive it? Will you be patient? Will you endure and suffer with Christ waiting for that glorious appearing? And by the way, the ruling doesn't just start when he returns. It says that he's ruling now. And his command to the church is, go and proclaim my rule. That's the Great Commission. Go and tell everybody that Jesus is in charge. And it's time to obey him. It's time to repent. It's time to come to Christ. While you can do so under his grace and forgiveness and the promise of new life in your mortal bodies. This is how the gospel takes hold in your life in practical ways. And God gives his spirit to do these things. So we're going to finish with a hymn to remind us that it is indeed a joyful fight. And uh, I'm just going to pray and we're going to sing Joyful, Joyful as our final hymn.